civil rights movement touched every part of the country and by the early 60s it galvanized chicago in a rally at soldier field with dr martin luther king jr after this rally i'm sure that everybody in chicago will realize that the negro in this community is determined to be free 
rising consciousness of black Chicago would become Richard Daly's biggest challenge, and his response would earn him the reputation of a leader who paid only lip service to the idea of real integration. They came from the South, farms, small towns, looking for work in the big, prosperous cities of the North. From the time Richard Daley entered politics in the 30s to the time of Kennedy's election, Chicago's black population tripled, and it would keep on growing for the next 20 years. As blacks moved in, whites moved out to the suburbs. Chicago had the reputation as the most residentially segregated city in the country. As late as 1960, some public beaches were still reserved for whites. You could walk downtown all day and, and wouldn't see a black person in the loop. And our leaders in our community, in all walks of life, didn't see anything unusual about that. If you use a standard of running an efficient machine, uh, insofar as you could see it, no question you ran an efficient operation. Uh, did he run good government? Not by my standard, but by many people's standard he did. I don't think government was good because it excluded too many people. Uh, they were shut out. Unemployment rages at a major depression level in the black ghettos. But the bipartisan response is an anti-riot bill rather than a serious poverty program. And the modest proposals for model cities rent supplement and rent control, pitiful as they were to begin with, get caught in the maze of congressional inaction. And I submit to you tonight that a Congress that proves to be more anti-Negro than anti-rat needs to be dismissed. And in the North, uh, the Negro sees only retrogress, uh, and he doesn't find it as easy to get his vision centered on his target, the target of opposition, as he does in the South. Consequently, this is made for despair and at many points cynicism, a feeling that you can't win. And it simply means that we've got to develop in the North a massive job of organization and mobilizing forces and resources to deal with the problem in the urban ghettos of the North just as we've done it in the South. This is what I was saying when I said it's harder to see a target. Uh, in the South, in the nonviolent movement, we were aided always, on the whole, by the brutality of our opponent. Uh, it isn't the same way in the uh, North. The other thing is that you don't have legal segregation uh, in the North as you do in the South. So it is much more difficult to get people to see exactly what you're doing, but uh, it isn't an impossible job. It's, uh, it's a hard, it's a tedious job at times to get people to be aroused from their apathetic slumbers, but I still feel that uh, Negroes in the North can be motivated just as they were motivated in the South. And I think as time goes on with the growing economic deprivation in the Negro community, 
it will even be easier because people will come to see that not only is something wrong in general, but something is wrong in particular in their own economic and housing situations. Anybody can see that the schools are more segregated in the North today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court rendered its decision declaring segregation unconstitutional. Anybody can look around the ghetto and see that ghetto schools are predominantly segregated and devoid of quality. Anyone who moves through a major ghetto of our country will see the housing conditions uh, people don't have to be reminded that they are forced to live in slums in many instances, and they're often rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. And it isn't too hard to see the exploitation that the Negro confronts in the ghetto, where he is forced to pay uh, more for less and constantly trying to make ends meet. But because of either no job as a result of unemployment, uh, a job that is so uh, economically unprofitable that the person can't make ends meet and I think they see all of these things and more and more they are coming to see them because before the people of the north were looking to the south and they supported the struggles of the south now they are coming to see that their problems are very real and they've got organized to grapple with them this is Mike Wallace in New York in our studios in Chicago is Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, I understand that you have just reached agreement with Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago. Does that mean that the threat of violence tonight in Chicago is considerably diminished in your estimation? Well, I certainly hope so, and in a sense I feel that the threat of violence tonight is diminished a great deal as a result of the agreement. I don't want to give the impression uh, that the agreement reached this afternoon will in any way solve the ultimate problems which we face in Chicago, uh, but I do think they will do a great deal to ease tensions tonight. The mayor said to us that uh, things were already going on, that they were seeking to do certain things on the question of slums and on uh, the various problems that we face in housing. Our contention was that while things were being done, they were merely bringing about surface changes, and that the problem is so gigantic in extent that it demanded structural changes. It demanded an imaginative, bold program because the Negro community can no longer live with token changes. Dr. King and Mayor Daley achieved no meeting of the minds. Critics of both said that neither man was really listening to the other. We are trying to conduct a nonviolent movement here in Chicago, and we are going on with that program, but we need support. And there's no point in the power structure and anybody else saying that because we are peacefully going around trying to change conditions that we are the cause of the riots. That's dishonest. It is untrue, it is unfair to say it to the public, because we have stood up for nonviolence with all of our hearts, and those who will make this peaceful revolution impossible will make a violent revolution inevitable. And we've got to get this over. I need help. I need some victories. I need some concessions to take back. Dr. Martin Luther King is in our Chicago studios. Dr. King, what about it, this charge that either you or your people are in some measure responsible for the violence 
that has broken out in Chicago the past three nights? Well, this is absolutely untrue and unfounded. It is a known fact all over the nation and over the world that I have taught consistently a doctrine of nonviolence. I have done it here in Chicago, and uh, all of the members of my staff are absolutely committed uh, to nonviolence, and I think it is totally unjust and even irresponsible to say that the individuals who are trying to bring about a peaceful re resolution of a very serious problem are responsible for riots when they develop. We do not advocate riots. We think they are socially destructive and that they are self-defeating. And I think we'll have to put the blame for this riot where it really is. And that is the failure of America and the failure of the city of Chicago to deliver its promises to the Negro people. This riot uh, was born out of the wounds of frustration uh, despair, deep discontent, and uh, seething desperation on the part of those who were uh, misguidedly lashing out against uh, a society that they feel did a grave injustice and continues to do a grave injustice to them. Later in the summer, Martin Luther King marched into Marquette Park. It was a dramatic display of the intense feeling in Chicago. But blacks did not see themselves as just another immigrant group. They were fighting racism in every facet of their lives, in housing, jobs, and especially education. For the black community, these were instruments of segregation. Mobile classrooms, they were useful in accommodating the overcrowding at black schools, but they also provided a way to avoid integrating blacks into emptying white schools. They became known as Willis Wagons, named for Ben Willis, the superintendent of schools. No question that Ben Willis was the architect of the plan. I think that Ben Willis could not have existed uh, then without uh, the explicit support of the mayor. In Washington, a senatorial committee was set up to investigate rising violence in the ghettos. King was summoned to put forth his position on the topic. Basically, uh, uh, economic and social. Yes, that's correct, Senator Ribikoff. I think uh, that it is necessary to see at this point that the issues which we confront are the hard uh, core economic issues for about a decade we worked on public accommodations and the right to vote. And as I said earlier, it was necessary to do this in order to remove a stigma, uh, in order to remove the humiliation of a caste system. Uh, but now we are moving into an area where we must demand uh, basic reform that will deal with these basic economic issues, a whole problem of housing and education. And uh, I think we've got to see that this is much harder. It was easier to integrate public facilities. It was easier to gain the right to vote because it didn't cost the nation anything. He was moving into the arena of economics and economic justice. 
and 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 that was a whole different arena. And a lot of those people who had supported him in trying to get rid of the laws about sitting on the back of the bus and being able to eat at the lunch counter, when they start talking about economics, boy, some of those people who been, they start pulling away. Cause this is that this was a new ball. This is another ball game. In the second half of the 1960s, America entered a long cycle of race riots. Media attention shifted from the South to the ghettos of the North. King followed this movement. He campaigned to denounce the economic injustices that blacks faced in America's major cities. King described riots as temper tantrums of children, of, of, of people who don't have an option. Temperature, it's a cry out to say, I'm somebody, I'm here. Listen to me, look what you're doing to me. And King understood that. And he realized that the same style of resistance that he had used in the South would not work in the North. When you see King in his later life, he begins to refer to all these radical blacks in our tradition who also challenge the government. And so you see King talking about, they've turned my dream into a nightmare. And he began to take a stand against the war in Vietnam. He began to pull, uh, organize a poor people's campaign and fight against poverty. That King, was the king who became the radical king. The poor black and white are still perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. What happens to a dream deferred? It leads to bewildering frustration and corroding bitterness. I came to see this in a personal experience here in Chicago last summer. And all the speaking that I have done in the United States before varied audiences, including some hostile whites, the only time that I have ever been booed was one night in our regular weekly mass meeting by some angry young men of our movement. I went home that night with an ugly feeling. Selfishly, I thought of my sufferings and sacrifices over the last 12 years. Why would they boo one so close to them? But as I lay awake thinking, I finally came to myself, and I could not for the life of me have less in patience and understanding for those young men. For 12 years, I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not too distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accept accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. 
We have come here from the dusty plantations of the Deep South and the depressing ghettos of the North. We have come from the great universities and the flourishing suburbs. We have come from Appalachian poverty and from conscience-stricken wealth. But we have come. And we have come here because we shared a common concern for the moral health of our nation. We have come because our eyes have seen through the superficial glory and glitter of our society and observed the coming of judgment. Like the prophet of old, we have read the handwriting on the wall. We have seen our nation weighed in the balance of history and found wanting. It is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. By moving north and by concerning itself with equality in housing and employment, the civil rights movement began to encounter increased resistance, the so-called white backlash. other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. <laughs> well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile 
and as hate-filled as I've seen here in Chicago. But the march will go on anyway? Oh, very definitely. We can't stop the march. We've been going on in a few minutes. You feel you're in a closed society, Dr. King, here in the southwest side of Chicago? Oh, yes. It's definitely a closed society. And we're going to make it an open society. Just slide up a little bit. And we feel that we have to do it this way in order to bring the evil out into the open so that this community will be forced to deal with it. These young guys had taken the sticks off of the placards, started breaking out windows, and they started the riot. And you know, once you start it, everybody gets in it. And rather than trying to isolate the people who were rioting, the police just waited into the crowd, just beating people indiscriminately, just, just, just beating them. It was, it was, it was horrible. Martin was taken up physically, put in a car, and taken to the closest hotel for his own safety. And he said, we've got to have a peaceful march. If we don't do it here, we can't go to Washington. King was despondent. Others were losing faith in his nonviolent philosophy. Maybe his time was past. Martin Luther King was at a crossroads. Despite doubts, despite death threats, he refused to turn back. On the night of April 3rd, he appeared before a packed congregation at Mason Temple. It was thundering and lightning, and the rain was coming hard. And, he, and Martin didn't take a text. We called it the mountaintop speech. He just started speaking extemporaneously. And I had not heard him. Of all the speeches I'd heard, times I'd heard him speak, I'd not heard him like this. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that he was going through a purging of his fear that I no longer fear death. He always said he would not live to be 40. He didn't think he would. He wanted to, but he never thought he'd live to be 40 years old. He was 39 when he was killed. The job ahead must be massive and positive. We must develop massive action programs all over the United States of America in order to deal with the problems that I have mentioned. Now, in order to develop these massive action programs, we've got to get rid of one or two false notions that continue to exist in our society. One is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. I'm sure you've heard this idea it is the notion almost that that is something in the very 
the very flow of time that will miraculously cure all evils. And I've heard this over and over again. There are those, and they're often sincere people, who say to Negroes and their allies in the white community that we should slow up and just be nice and patient and continue to pray, and in 100 and two, or 200 years, the problem will work itself out because only time can solve the problem. Well, I think that is an answer to that myth. And it is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I'm absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists in our nation, have often used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words of the bad people and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that social progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. And so we must help time, and we must realize that the time is always right to do right. Now, there's another notion that gets out. It's around everywhere. It's in the South, it's in the North, it's in California and all over our nation. It's a notion that legislation can't solve the problem, it can't do anything in this area. And those who <clears throat> project this argument contend that you've got to change the heart and that you can't change the heart through legislation. Now, I would be the first one to say that there is real need for a lot of heart changing in our country, and uh, I believe in changing the heart. I preach about it. I believe in the need for conversion in many instances and regeneration, to use theological terms. And I would be the first to say that if the race problem in America is to be solved, the white person must treat the Negro right not merely because the law says it, but because it's natural, because it's right, and because the Negro is his brother. And so I realize that if we are to have a truly integrated society, men and women will have to rise to the majestic heights of being obedient to the unenforceable. But after saying this, let me say, another thing which gives the other side, and that is that although it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. Even though it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, it can restrain the heartless. Even though it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. And so while the law may not change the hearts of men, it can and it does change the habits of men. 
And when you begin to change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes will be changed. Pretty soon the hearts will be changed. Now I'm convinced that we still need strong civil rights legislation. And there's a bill before Congress right now to have a national a federal open housing bill, a federal law declaring discrimination in housing unconstitutional, and also a bill to make the administration of justice real all over our country. Now, nobody can doubt the need for this. Nobody can doubt the need if he thinks about the fact that since 1963, some 58 Negroes and white civil rights workers have been brutally murdered in the state of Mississippi alone. And not a single person has been convicted for these dastardly crimes. There have been some indictments, but no one has been convicted. And so there is a need for the whole question of the administration of justice. There is a need for fair housing laws all over our country. And it is tragic indeed that Congress last year allowed this bill to die. And that bill died in Congress. A bit of democracy died. A bit of our commitment to justice died. And if it happens again in this section, session of Congress, a greater degree of our commitment to democratic principles will die. And I can see no more dangerous trend in our country than the constant developing of predominantly Negro central cities ringed by white suburbs. This is only inviting social disaster. And the only way this problem will be solved is by the nation taking a strong stand and by state governments taking a strong stand against housing segregation and against discrimination in all of these areas. Now there's another thing that I'd like to mention as I talk about the Massive Action Program and time will not permit me to go into specific programmatic action to any great degree. But it must be realized now that the Negro cannot solve the problems by himself. There again, there are those who always say to Negroes, why don't you do something for yourself? Why don't you lift yourselves by your own bootstraps? And we hear this over and over again. Now certainly, there are many things that we must do for ourselves and that only we can do for ourselves. Certainly, we must develop within a sense of dignity and self-respect that nobody else can give us, a sense of manhood, a sense of personhood, a sense of not being ashamed of our heritage, not being ashamed of our color. It was wrong and tragic that the Negro ever allowed himself to be ashamed of the fact that he was black, or ashamed of the fact that his home, ancestral home, was Africa. And so there's a great deal that the Negro can do to develop self-respect. There's a great deal that the Negro must do and can do to amass political and economic power within his own community and by using his own resources. And so we must do certain things for ourselves, but this must not negate the fact 
and cause the nation to overlook the fact that the Negro cannot solve the problem himself. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America Yes, you jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. 